How do you discover the knowledge of God? The Bible teaches that God made man with some innate knowledge of God, but that knowledge is very limited. So how are we to know God more? Who is God? What is he like? What has he done? Who are we? What is our created purpose and place in this world? How do you discover such knowledge? Well, there is a broad path that many people take to answer these questions. It's known as mysticism. What is mysticism? Mysticism is the pursuit of spiritual reality through subjective means. Mysticism seeks union with the infinite, absolute essence of the universe, which is what they call God. And the presence of God cannot be entered through rational understanding, but through feeling and experience. So the mind is bypassed, and they purposely try to reach an altered state of consciousness. Through trances, visions, dreams, they're trying to elevate themselves into a spiritual realm and gain some divine insight. Now, you won't find these truths about connecting with God in the Bible or these thoughts about connecting with God in the Bible, but mysticism has been no stranger to Christianity. For example, the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages was dominated by this kind of mysticism. There was a de-emphasis on Scripture as even the priests and the monks didn't really know the Bible, That didn't matter because you connect with God based on personal experience. You partake of the divine through the mysteries of the sacraments, through contemplative prayer, through self-denial. And this mystical approach was largely rejected by the reformers. They questioned whether these mystical experiences and insights could really come from God if they are contradicting what the Bible says. And to the contrary, the reformers recaptured what's called the sufficiency of Scripture. And that God in his word has already given to us everything we need for life, for godliness, for knowing him. And spiritual experience still matters, but it doesn't come in light of God's word. It comes through and out of God's word. But as time went on, mysticism crept back into the church. The 1800s saw the rise of modernism and rationalism. The sufficiency of scripture was challenged yet again, this time by the claims of science and psychology. So instead of trying to defend the Bible, many just, well, gave up on the Bible and went back to this individual, personal, religious experience. That's what matters most. Because at the end of the day, you can't really argue against experience. And in the 1900s, this thinking fed right into what's become the Pentecostal and charismatic movements. These movements have been driven by an overwhelming emphasis on personal religious experience. A true spirituality is not found reading a book. It's found in emptying the mind and being filled with the spirit. Visions, dreams, trances, and tongues are all seen as the the true means of entering the presence of God and discovering his hidden will. I recently read an account of a young woman named Anna. She attended a silent Christian ashram, it means monastery, in South India. And most of her time was spent in silent meditation, prayer, yoga, reading Christian and other mystics. She would go on long meditation walks while repeating this mantra as a a centering prayer. And this was just saying the name Jesus over and over and over again. That's all it was. But soon she found herself unconsciously starting to pray in tongues. And she said she found a deep awareness of God's presence and she felt the cosmic Christ. So what do you make of this? Is this right or wrong? Is this true spirituality? Like, should we be doing this to try and find God? I mean, it seemed to work for her. She says she felt connected to God. Who are you to say she's wrong? Or how can you argue against someone's experience? Should we be seeking to encounter God's presence through mystical experiences? This issue is not new. The early church was confronted with mysticism quite a lot. In the Greek and Roman worlds, uh, world, mystery religions were everywhere, which were all about you know, encountering the divine through this personal, subjective, religious experience. And so it's not surprising then to, to learn that the biblical writers had something to say about all this. The Apostle Paul, for example, he, he talked about mystery quite a bit. He spoke of God's mystery, which refers to the, the secret, hidden will of God. A knowledge of God. 
But this was a far cry from mysticism because, look, there certainly exists secret, hidden knowledge of the divine. But again, the question is, how do we discover such knowledge? How do we know God? The mystic would say through religious experience, through divine encounters produced by altered consciousness. You've got to somehow transport yourself to the spiritual realm to connect with the divine. But scripture would reject this entirely. This is not of God. The secret things belong to the Lord. And and who are you to think that you can just peer into the mind of God at will? The mysteries of God do exist. But the only way we get to know them is if they are revealed. That God himself must choose to reveal his mind to us. He has to disclose himself to us because we can't see God on our own. We cannot experience God on our own. But this is what God has already done in the scriptures. The scriptures represent the revelation of the mysteries of God. And this revelation is indeed sufficient for all that we need in this life, for life, for godliness, for knowing God, for experiencing God, which means you're not going to find a higher level of spirituality by looking elsewhere or by looking inward. So the very last thing we need to do today as Christians is to try and empty our minds of everything in the hope of finding God. Now, just the opposite. We are called to fill our minds with scripture and renew our minds with the truth that we might see more clearly God who's already been revealed in pages of scripture. And that revelation culminates with his son, Christ, who came as incarnate revelation. In Colossians 2, 3, the apostle Paul said that it's in Christ, all treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden, but it's an open secret. Now he has been revealed and we need not look elsewhere. These are very important issues and they come to the forefront in our passage today, which is also from Colossians chapter two. So you can, as we usually do, take your Bibles and open them now to Colossians chapter 2. It's where we're at this morning. Colossians chapter 2, where we have slowly and methodically been going through the book of Colossians on Sunday mornings. I hope you're not getting too tired of kind of like the same old background setup, but we kind of have to do it in case people are new. But here, especially in chapter 2, Paul is taking on some false teaching that was threatening the church and these young Christians. There were others outside the church who were opposing them, these young new Christians. And these false teachers claimed to believe in Jesus, sort of, but they denied his deity, they denied his sufficiency, they denied his supremacy. They blurred together Christianity with Judaism and paganism. And so a ton of error was mixed into their teaching. Last time we saw how Jewish legalism came through in what they were promoting. And this week in the next passage, we see how that their pagan influence comes through in their mysticism. This group of false teachers was very elitist. And they claimed they had a, a deeper knowledge, they had a closer connection with the divine. And cons- consequently, they were judging these, these other Christians as lacking. And so a very large reason Paul writes Colossians is to help these Christians know the truth, know Christ, and to ward off the, the error that was coming their way. You should know by now his first general warning comes back in verse 8, chapter 2, verse 8. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. According to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. These false teachers neglected Christ. They denied his sufficiency to save, to sanctify. And so after this, Paul goes on to to show the opposite. He gives three big displays of Christ's sufficiency. We cover that in length. That's verses 9 through 15. Well, after he finishes that, though, he's not done. He circles back, though, to what these people were teaching and claiming, and he's going to come back and take them head on and take their their philosophy head on. 
He's going to expose their underlying beliefs and show uh, they don't provide any answers at all. And so specifically in verses 16 and 17, he shows how legalism is not the answer. Then later in verses 20 through 23, he's going to show how asceticism is not the answer. These are not the means of salvation or spirituality. But today our focus is on verse 18 and 19, that the middle of these three rebuttals, you might say, where he shows mysticism is not the answer. They were claiming a, a higher level of spirituality and a deeper insight into God. And that led them to a different form of worship, as we'll see. But they were hugely in error. In lacking Christ, they lacked truth. And this unique expression of false teaching from Colossae may not exist today. We may not see this specific brand of teaching still around, but the underlying approach and kind of philosophy of mysticism has plagued the church forever, maybe more so today than ever. And so Christians still need to understand the right and wrong place of experience in the church. Religious experience matters very much, but it has a right and a wrong place. It's not wrong at all to desire connection with God, to know God deeply, to commune with God. You should, but you're not going to find those answers looking inward or just soul searching by looking to feelings or subjective experience. Your feelings should come after. Answers are found in Christ, and Christ is revealed in God's Word. This is an apt lesson, and we will see again how much it applies today and still relates. Let's just begin by reading this passage. It's a very interesting couple of verses right in the middle of Colossians 2. Colossians 2, 18, 19. It goes on to say, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by what the joints and ligaments provide grows with the growth, which is from God. Again, it's kind of a strange, bewildering passage, but let's just go through it little by little and pick it apart. And we might understand what he's saying here. Let's give you a simple outline, almost the same as last week, just to hold your thoughts. Let's start with number one, the exhortation. It starts with this exhortation in verse 18. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. And so the exhortation here is don't let other people defraud you or disqualify you. And this word for defraud comes from the Greek word for judge or an umpire in the games. Think of the Greek games. You know, judges or umpires would preside over the games. And the judge would be the one to positively, he would give the prize out to the winner. But negatively, he'd be the one to disqualify someone as well. But even worse, though, if you had, if you had a, a wrong judge or a corrupt judge, he could defraud or deprive a competitor of his rightful prize. You know, before the invention of instant replay, like judges or umpires had all the power in a game. Like in an Olympic race, if the runner just steps out of his or her running lane, they're disqualified. So it just takes one judge to say, I saw you step on the line and and you're out. What can you do when you have a wicked or corrupt judge seeking to disqualify you? You know, a FIFA soccer referee was literally just banned for life. After being convicted of a series of corrupt calls, he was being paid money to influence the outcome of games. And so he would call penalties on players wrongly and even give out red cards, disqualifying players all unjustly. I mean, can you just imagine a team losing like the World Cup, the greatest prize in soccer because of an unjust judge like this? Well, we in Christ, we have a prize. We have a greater prize we're competing for. We don't compete for a perishable wreath, as Paul would say, but an imperishable one eternal life with Christ. Philippians 3.14, Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
And Christians are in a race of faith, and we need to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. He began our faith. He will finish it. We are secure in his hands. But we know that from a human perspective, it is the one who endures to the end who will be saved. You've got to finish your race in the faith. If you leave the faith, if you abandon Christ, it's like you're giving up your prize. Well, these false teachers in diminishing Christ and promoting falsehood, they were seeking to disqualify Christians. They were threatening to defraud them of their prize by making them leave their race, leave their lane. It's like Olympic runners in a race. They each have their little lane. And and Christians were on a a narrow path, a narrow way, the way of Christ. And it's the only way that leads to eternal life. But there are many other lanes. There are broad paths leading to destruction. Christ himself taught. And these false teachers were trying to pull Christians out of their lane and, and draw them away from just simple faith in Christ and pull them to their side. But if you leave faith in Christ alone as your hope, if you leave that lane, you're disqualified. There's no other lane that leads to life. That's the only way. And we obviously trust God to preserve his people. But again, from that human perspective, we don't want to see anyone abandon the faith. Or turn away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. We don't want to see anyone disqualified by falling prey to error just because it's part of the culture or everyone believes this. So look, this is an important exhortation to heed. Watch out. Be on guard. Make sure others are not defrauding you or depriving you of the way and your prize. You know, back at verse 16, remember from last week, the exhortation was to not let other people judge you. These false teachers were acting as self-appointed judges, but they had a a wrong standard of judgment. They were unrighteous judges, and so you should reject that judgment. Don't let them falsely judge you. But now we find they were also acting as self-appointed umpires, seeking to disqualify you. But they were corrupt And wicked, and likewise, don't let them wrongly disqualify you. Now, from here, Paul goes on to elaborate on how these false teachers were trying to disqualify or defraud believers. They they wanted to pull these Christians out of the lane of Christ, so to speak, and into their lane. And their lane was not about Christ, at least not Christ alone. They professed a little Jesus, but he was not enough for sure. And so we see that their lane featured, well, a little bit of Jewish legalism as a way to please God and draw near. We also find today, though, like I said, the focus on on the mystical influences of their lane. They're trying to drag believers back into the domain of darkness and take them captive to philosophy and empty deception rather than according to Christ. Let's learn a little more specifically, though, how they were threatening to disqualify believers. And so, secondly, the elaboration. From the exhortation, now the elaboration. As verse 18 continues, Paul, he elaborates on how the false teachers were trying to disqualify these believers. In this time, these objections are not based on you know, Jewish dietary restrictions or the observance of days, like verse 16 before. But now that it comes because of their failure to have these mystical experiences. Now, these, these Christians, they just weren't as spiritual. And these other teachers, they expressed their spiritual superiority in three ways. Three ways. You see, in verse 18, he says, first, they were delighting in self-abasement. Don't let them defraud you by delighting in self-abasement. Now, you're probably wondering like, what that even means. And this term for self-abasement in the Greek, it's actually the word that's almost always translated humility. It's just the word for humility. Like 1 Peter 5, 5 says, clothe yourselves with humility. Toward one another. In fact, later in Colossians, Colossians 3.12, we are told to be humble. 
He says, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, and humility. So we are literally later commanded to possess humility. Humility is a low view of self compared to a high view of God. It's a chief Christian virtue. But you see here, Paul is saying these people, they were super, super humble. But it's no doubt he's using this term pejoratively, which there's a negative connotation to this humility. It means false humility, which is how the NIV and the New King James translate this. Theirs was a phony humility, which ironically is just a form of pride. And so that's what the NASB means with this self-abasement. Don't confuse this with true humility. Their view of spirituality as we'll see next time, was also intertwined with asceticism. And so the most pious among them was the lowest among them, the most austere, the most humble. You know, the more deprived you were, that meant the closer to God you were. This really comes out in the verse we'll see next time. Look at verse 23 at the bottom. He says at the end, these these are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom, in self-made religion and self-abasement, same word, and the severe treatment of the body. But these are no value against fleshly indulgence. That They're missing the boat. You can picture the chief among them boasting, like, you know, I don't eat any meat at all. I don't drink any wine. I sleep on the bare ground. I dress in sackcloth. I abstain from all sexual contact. I'm the lowest of the low. We see how their meekness and their humility became their boast. They were delighting in self-abasement. But hopefully you see how that's just thinly veiled spiritual pride. Ultimately, theirs was a religion of self-righteousness, self-effort. But when you're relying on yourself, your humility is a sham. I mean, to think you can be good enough or spiritual enough to, to know God or get to God on your own... In Scripture, that's the height of spiritual pride. We, we cannot. We need Christ. So theirs was a false humility which does not find God's favor. False humility is pride. God is opposed to the proud. This false humility only finds disqualification from God. His grace is for the humble, for those who are truly not relying on self, but on Christ alone. And their false humility was most likely connected to the second way they were threatening to defraud believers. You see in verse 18, they they sought to defraud believers by delighting in self-abasement. And then secondly, he says, by worshiping angels in the worship of angels. That sounds just strange, bizarre. You might read right over and not think anything about it, but Kind of seems out of place. Like, what's up with that? Were these people actually worshiping angels? Well, remember from our background study of the Colossian heresy, it seems these false teachers believed in a hierarchy of spiritual beings descended from God. And these other beings were like emanations of the divine essence. And we are of the flesh, which means we're way down on the totem pole. We're really far removed from God. But there are other beings. There are spiritual beings on a higher plane. They're, they're closer to God. And many refer to them as angels. And they were seen as the mediators between us and the divine. And if we hope to commune with the divine, we need these angels, these mediators. And this ties in with their false humility. You can just picture them saying, you know, like, you know, we can't go to God directly. Who are we to think we could enter the presence of the absolute now, we, we in, in our humility, we, we go to these angels, these intermediary beings. We'll, we'll include Christ in the mix. He's seen as one of these intermediary beings. But there's a plethora of angels. You need a, a series of intermediaries if you're going to approach the real presence of God. As a result, I, yes, I, I believe Paul was dealing with people who were literally worshiping angels. You know, their mystic spirituality led them down this road. This was seen as spiritual. And there's other evidence for angel worship in the region of Colossae from the early church. So a noted commentator, William Hendrickson, gives some support for this. 
He points out how the archangel Michael was worshipped in Asia Minor for centuries. And also there's a church father named Theodoret. And he later was commenting on this very passage in Colossians. And he wrote this. He said, quote, The disease for which St. Paul denounces continued for a long time in the region. In fact, the neighboring town of Laodicea, you know, later on in AD uh, 363, they had a little council and they said this, quote, It is not right for Christians to abandon the church of God and go away to invoke angels. End quote. Like, why would you have to declare that? Well, because people were still doing that for some reason, like veneration of angels, the worship of angels continued on for a long time in this region. Now, how exactly were they worshiping angels? The text doesn't say. But we do get some clues, and I think the chief expression of their worship was just prayer. This word for worship is often tied to invocation. And that fits the picture. It was common for pagans or mystics to invoke angels or spirits. They would regularly call on the angels to protect them, to preserve them, to deliver them, to guide them, to bless them, and so forth. You know, again, we can't access the divine directly. We need these spirit beings to elevate our requests to God and to go between. But listen, even if these false teachers weren't outright bowing down and sacrificing to angels, you still need to realize prayer is a form of worship. Do you get that? You know, prayer is a form of worship. And so praying to angels even is is still a huge problem. It's part of the definition of deity to receive and answer prayer. You realize only God can actually do that. You realize for God to hear the prayers of like millions of people all at once and not get confused requires omniscience. He's got to know all things. And for him to do anything and actually act on prayer requires omnipotence. He has to be powerful. And thankfully, God is both of those things, omniscient, omnipotent. He can hear and answer prayer. But that's why prayer is an act of worship. Because when people pray in faith, they're expressing this trust that, you know, I believe God is real, that he is sovereign and supreme. He can hear my prayers and he can deliver me. And that trust is worship. We pray to God in recognition that we have no other hope or help. And it's what sets God apart. And it's for this reason that it is entirely inappropriate to pray to anyone else, even an angel. That They're not omniscient. They, they don't know all things. And they're not omnipotent. They don't have all power to do all things. They're not divine beings and praying to them is undue veneration. And this explains, granted, this is a world partly of mystery, but what we do know is revealed in scripture. And it's no surprise then that every time we see an angel, they are rejecting worship. They know that they were created for one purpose, to worship God, not to be worshiped. So in Revelation, for example, you know, John, he's he's overwhelmed by these visions he's seeing. And so he falls down twice at the feet of the messenger angel. And both times the angel says, get up, I'm just a fellow servant of God. It's blasphemous to venerate angels at all. In fact, angels, they themselves only worship God. Revelation 5.11 We see all the holy angels around the throne of God, and they themselves are crying out, worthy is the lamb. It's only fallen angels like Satan who seek their own worship. The Bible teaches there's only one mediator between God and man, man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. And so now that Christ has come, you don't need any other mediator between you and God. No priest, no pope, no pastor, no person, no angel. That we access the throne of God directly now. That's just by grace, but it's through Christ alone. That's the only way. Like I said, though, for some reason, the worship of angels just continued in this region. And it carried on in church history, as we saw. And and it actually made its way later into the Catholic Church. Prayer to angels is still practiced by Catholics today. They pray to angels still. I remember my grandma grew up in Italy. She was a hardcore Catholic. She would always invoke Michael for warding off evil. 
Catholics also often pray to Gabriel. And their, their traditional prayer to Gabriel is literally to ask him to intercede for them at the throne of mercy. It's like the same thing, that he's an intermediary. We can't go directly to God. Gabriel will take our prayers. He'll get them all the way up. How is that any different? You know, when it comes to Mary or the saints or angels, Catholics will very adamantly say that they only worship God alone. They don't worship these figures. But that is doublespeak as they kneel down before statues and icons of angels, honoring them and praying directly to them. How is that not worship? And as with the mystical influence of the Colossian false teachers, such error takes you out of bounds. This is disqualifying. Not only is this practice outright just idolatrous, but any practice that diminishes Christ is not of God. Theirs is a false worship and a false spirituality. And don't let anyone lead you away from the worship of Christ alone. Don't go out of bounds. Now, carrying on, there's one more way these false teachers were seeking to defraud the believers and pull them away from Christ. Verse 18, he adds thirdly that they were also taking their stand on visions they had seen. They were taking their stand on visions they had seen. The false teachers were claiming to have supernatural insight into heavenly mysteries. Literally, it says they were going into great detail about things they had supposedly seen. They're taking their stand on visions, meaning they were basing their spiritual authority on, on their supposed revelations. It doesn't really matter what the Bible says. If they had direct contact with the divine, they, they bypassed the Bible. They, they communed with God himself, or at least a mediating angel. But they had access to deeper knowledge that you, you're not going to find out just reading your Bible. And so through their mystical connection, they found a higher plane of spirituality. They achieved a, a deeper insight into divine realities. So look, you can keep your simple little Bible. If you want a real channel to the divine, you need to listen to them. And many people do. The weak, the immature, the undiscerning, they still fall prey to those who spin a good spiritual tale. You know, when a teacher or an authority figure claims to have heard from God or communed with an angel, or seen a vision, or even been transported to heaven. There's all some people who they don't even think to question that or compare that to scripture, but they just eat it right up. And that person really sounds spiritual. So who am I to say they didn't go to heaven and come back? But beware, Paul would say, there's been no shortage of teachers or leaders who just want you to listen to them, do what they say. But you have to be careful and discerning. Don't take their word for it. Don't take my word for it. You search the scriptures. Compare all things to God's word. Wasn't it Paul himself who said in Galatians 1 that if we or even an angel from heaven should preach to you a contrary gospel, he's to be accursed. Instead, like the Bereans, test all things. Compare all to scripture because God will never use a teacher or a person to reveal something that goes against what he has already said in his word. And so take heed lest you are disqualified in your race by listening to the wrong person or following anyone who is going to take you away from Christ and his word. Well, let's finish up with this. Thirdly, the evaluation. Thirdly here, the evaluation. Here Paul directly gives his evaluation of these false teachers and what they are telling those who threaten to disqualify the brethren. And here's why you, you shouldn't listen to them or buy what they're selling. He says first, this comes to the end of verse 18, they're inflated without cause by their fleshly mind. You see that at the end of verse 18? The word inflated is derived from a, a pair of bellows. It literally means to puff up or to inflate. So they had, they had seen so many visions of heaven that their heads became puffed up. But of course, this just speaks of their arrogance, and that's almost always how this word is translated. This is the opposite of humility. This is pride and arrogance. They were not full of spiritual wisdom and insight. 
They're just full of hot air. Their humility was a pretense. And in reality, they were extremely proud of their spirituality with overinflated egos. And all this was, Paul says, without cause. They had no good reason. They sure had an exalted opinion of themselves, but not for any good reason. Whatever they, they saw, whatever they thought they saw, at the very least, it wasn't from God. Their teaching did not come from the Spirit, it came from the flesh. And they believed angels or, or spirit beings were the source of their special insight. But in reality, he says, just came from their own depraved, deprived, fleshly minds. It came from within. And how ironic, too, because people like this claim to be so spiritual. And I'm sure you know people like this. I do. You know, they're, they're, they, they just kind of publish how spiritual they are. They meditate. They do yoga all the time. They read tarot cards. They know all about astrology. They claim to be in touch with the spirits. Kind of people ooh and awe at them. But in reality, there's nothing actually spiritual about them. And they're separated from Christ. That means they're not in the light. They're actually deeper in the darkness. That's, that's not, at least biblically speaking, that's not spiritual. That's just deceived. And it's just the flesh. And the proof of their spiritual bankruptcy comes in the next evaluation. He says in verse 20, or I'm sorry, verse 19, that they were not holding fast to the head, which is Christ, of course. And this is the real problem. They were not holding fast to the head. They aimed to defraud believers of their prize, but in reality, they were the ones who were in jeopardy of being disqualified and, and defrauded. Colossians 2.3, remember? It says, In Christ are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Colossians 2.9, In Christ all the fullness of deity dwells. And Christ is the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. What that means is anyone who claims spiritual enlightenment apart from Christ, they are the spiritual fraud. Christ is the head of all creation. We learned that back in Colossians 1, right? He's also the head of the church, his body, the body of the redeemed. The false teachers were trying to exclude the Colossians from being a part of the real people of God. You Christians, you're not actually the people of God. We are. We commune with the divine. But they were the ones who were excluded, being cut off from the head. You're not actually part of the body if you don't, if you're not attached to the head. And rejecting the true Christ, they were cut off from the head. That's a big problem because the church derives its life from the head. Eternal life flows from the head. And only those who abide in the true Christ live and grow and bear fruit. That cut off from Christ, they had no source of life. And cut off from Christ, they had no source of growth. So speaking now of Christ, the head, Paul adds at the end of verse 19, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with the growth which is from God. The body of Christ is one. The church is one body united together. And, And you should know a huge dimension of our growth is our interdependence. That God designed this body that no one in the body is going to grow alone. You need to be together to grow. And that's Paul's big point in the parallel of Ephesians 4. But here, and with his body analogy, the emphasis is on, on the head. That Although we only grow together, it's also true that we ultimately draw our spiritual sustenance from Christ the head. By design, you're not going to grow cut off from the body, cut off from the local church, isolated like a coal separated from the fire. You're going to grow cold and weak. That's true. But it's also true, and it's more true, that no one in the body is going to grow separated from Christ. And we ultimately derive our spiritual growth and sustenance from the head. It's like Jesus said in John fifteen five, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
That's what Jesus said, apart from him, apart from abiding in him, you can do nothing, meaning nothing of value to God. And so who is the true disciple? He's the one who bears fruit by abiding in Jesus. You display you're the true disciple. As Jesus went on to say in John 15, verse 8, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And that again comes by abiding in Christ. But of course, what does that mean for those who are not bearing fruit? Well, they are proving themselves false disciples. They're not in Christ. They're only good for one thing. As Jesus said in John 15, verse 6, he says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. You know, God designed our bodies to constantly feed in order to live and grow. So cut off from food, your body will starve and wither away and eventually perish. And you realize the same is true spiritually. that We have to constantly abide in Christ to live and to grow. But these false teachers had turned away from the bread of life, And they paid some lip service to him, but they did not abide in him. They looked to others or to angels or to self for their spiritual sustenance. But this just ensured their spiritual starvation. It's like they were sewing their mouths shut. And if you listen to them, you're going to end up like them. And so for these reasons, heed this warning. Don't let anyone defraud you of your prize. Christ himself is the prize. And beware of those who are not holding fast to the head and they're trying to draw you away from him and put your eyes on self or angels or saints or anything. And you know, there are still plenty who fit this description. Even today, how many false teachers still claim that they have had visions of heaven or they've gone to heaven? Heaven is for real. 90 minutes in heaven to heaven and back. And you look at these stories and their teaching, and what's the common thread? They all end up exalting self and diminishing Christ. Their picture of heaven is a land of wish fulfillment, but the Jesus of Scripture is glaringly absent. Do you think that is of the Lord? This reminds me of a piercing quote from John Piper. He writes, quote, listen carefully to this. If you could have heaven with no sickness with all the friends you ever had on earth, and with all the food you ever liked, all the leisurely activities you ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? End quote. You know, most people would say, yeah, that sounds pretty good. They just want the stuff. But the true disciple would say, no. But that's not good enough. They just want the Savior. He is the prize. You know, what's interesting in all this is that there was actually one, well, a couple, but one notable heavenly vision recorded in Scripture. There was one, you might say, legitimate mystical experience. You remember how the Apostle Paul himself had a heavenly vision. So it it can't happen if the Lord so desires. He can do what he pleases. But Paul himself records this in 2 Corinthians 12. False teachers in Corinth were preaching another Christ, another gospel, another spirit. They were claiming their own visions, and the Corinthians were just being drawn away by this. So Paul rebukes them, and then he defends his own apostleship. He's forced to boast, so to speak, to defend his veracity and authenticity. He knows it's not profitable to boast because it can incite pride, but it's necessary. He's got to set the record straight. And so, look, you want to talk visions. Well, the Apostle Paul had a real vision. He was caught up to heaven. Now, you read the passage, he speaks in the third person, but from the context, it's super obvious. He's, he's talking about himself. And 14 years prior, he was caught up to heaven. Whether in a dream or in the body, he doesn't know. But he heard inexpressible words that he was not permitted to speak. Talk about a mystical experience. 
But here's the difference, though. Paul said if he wanted to boast about his vision, he wouldn't be a fool because this actually happened. This truly happened. But he was not going to go on boasting about it because he wanted the Corinthians to see him and evaluate him just by the words he preached and the example he lived. He wasn't going to boast because he did not want to see himself puffed up, but Christ. God's grace is perfected in weakness, and God is pleased to use the foolishness of the message preached to save sinners. And so Paul was content to know among them just Christ crucified. That's what they need to know. At the end, all he wanted to do was just exalt Christ. That was the end of everything. And that's our measure of experience as well. Is it exalting to Christ or not? And these false teachers in the end, what a contrast. Because all that they claimed, all it really did was contradict Scripture, puff up man, and diminish Christ. And so is that from the Lord? Beware. Christless mysticism like this still exists, still influences the church. You do have to be on guard. That in many places, churches have just swung their doors wide open to Eastern mysticism, New Age thinking, just without being discerning at all, just accept it all. And it may be a bigger problem in the church now more than ever. You watch out for anyone who claims that personal subjective experience is the source of divine truth. And I have to say, this is what is so troubling with the modern charismatic movement. Now, I don't want to paint with too broad a brushstroke. There are many in this movement who are our genuine brothers. We love them. They do exalt Christ. But there's a danger in the movement in general that many dimensions of the movement resemble mysticism far more than biblical Christianity, even of the first century. Now, I was reading the testimony of a self-professed modern mystic. He's not a Christian. His self-identified religion is love, light, and life. He practices meditation. He says he experiences states of divine ecstasy regularly. But he said he was blown away when he witnessed a charismatic church. He went and visited a charismatic church. And beyond merely following traditional beliefs, they were more focused on experiencing the divine. And he said this in observation, quote, They have all the forms and practices that induce altered states of consciousness. Entering into states of ecstasy, glossolia, that just means tongues, energy moving through the group and in individuals, direct presence of the divine, visions, and so forth, end quote. This man was no Christian, but he said this in great approval. He said he felt right at home as a fellow mystic. I think that's a very sad but very telling observation. But indeed, it's true that many practices of the modern charismatic movement mirror mysticism of old and new age philosophy of today. Their ecstatic utterances, repetitious prayers, and mindless mantras are designed to disengage the mind so as to elevate one's experience because that's where you encounter God, right? That's what we're trying to do and bless that desire, but we encounter God by just emptying the mind and experience only, right? Look, we want genuine religious experience. If your heart has no passion and affection for the Lord, you should question yourself if you have no feeling and heart for God. But this is not spirituality according to Scripture. Scripture does not teach that the mind must be silenced because it's an obstacle to truly knowing God. The exact opposite. In salvation, we're given a new mind capable of knowing the Lord, And what are we told to do with our new minds that we might grow and experience God and know God more? Well, how about Romans 12 too? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Or Ephesians 4.23, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You know, never are we told to empty our minds as if we connect with God in some silent meditation or mindless mantra. No, but we are told to fill our minds. You don't want them empty. Fill your minds. Saturate your minds with Scripture, the truth of God's Word. There you will encounter God as 
revealed. And the Lord Jesus himself prayed for us, for the future church, before he died. John 17, 17, he prayed to the Father. He said, Lord, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That God has already given us everything we need for life and godliness. And that comes in the true knowledge of Christ Jesus, not apart from the true knowledge of Christ Jesus. That's just 2 Peter 1.3, which we read this morning. That we've been given everything we need for life and godliness in the true knowledge of Christ Jesus. We don't need angels to bring us closer to God. We don't need heavenly visions. God's already given us direct access to him and his throne, his presence. And then it comes through his son, Christ Jesus, who abides in us and with us by faith. You want a mystical experience? Well, there's your biblical experience. We are meant to commune with Christ. But if you want to know God and experience God more, don't bypass your mind. Engage your mind. Fill it with the mind of Christ, which is his word. Heed this counsel, which is coming up in a few verses in Colossians. Colossians 3, 1 through 2. He says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. Let's make sure we are always holding fast to the head, no matter what others are saying, what others are doing, so that we do not lose our prize. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we, we do pray that we cling to Christ and that our resolve this morning is to, to draw nearer to him. Lord, you made us to know you. You made us to commune with you. You made us to have relationship with the divine, with God. You are a God of relationship. You made us in your image. We are to reflect that and enjoy your presence. But the truth is we can't cut off in sin. In our sin, our rebellion against you, of which we all are guilty, our minds were darkened, Scripture says. Our hearts were killed and made dead, calloused. We cannot know you. The natural man can't understand the things of the Spirit of God. We were thoroughly lost and and just groping in the dark, the blind leading the blind. That is us apart from your intervention. But we give you the glory this morning knowing that In your grace, in your desire to draw us to yourself, you sent Christ to die on the cross, to rise from the dead, to pay for our sins, that we might be redeemed. And in that redemption comes new eyes, a new heart, new ears, a new spirit, one which now can see you, can know you and experience you. But now that comes through your son Christ and as he is revealed in your word. Lord, we don't worship the Bible. It's just that the word gives us access to him, to the Savior who has come. This is your disclosure of these mysteries. But it's by these truths we live. We're forgiven, we're reconciled, we live, and then we experience delight and passion and affection that the world can't know because ours is based on the, the sure, absolute word of God. So I pray we do draw closer to you. We do want genuine experience of our God. But may we get it by renewing our minds with the truth and the word of Christ, that it would fill us and transform us to live out your will and enjoy you. All to Christ's glory. In his name we pray. Amen.